This is Critical Attitudes, and I'm Nathan Waddell. In this episode, I spoke with Professor John Mullen, the Lord Northcliffe Chair of Modern English Literature at University College London. John is the author of several books, among them Sentiment and Sociability, The Language of Feeling in the 18th Century, How Novels Work, and Anonymity, A Secret History of English Literature, and most recently, What Matters in Jane Austen. He has also edited literary works by Daniel Defoe and Samuel Johnson for the Oxford World's Classics imprint. I met up with John in his office at UCL, just off Gower Street, and so what you're about to hear is accompanied every now and then by the sounds of urban traffic and the rattlings of central heating pipes. I began our conversation by asking John if he could say a little about how his career got started. I always think my career started, this is a pretentious way of putting it, but it's true, when I met J.R.R. Tolkien when I was 14 years old, I was friends with his grandson and was staying with him. And we went into Oxford, I'd never been to Oxford before, and we went into an Oxford college, I'd never been into one of those before, and he said, my friend, my then friend Simon Tolkien said, would you like to meet my grandfather? I was 14, I was still keen on Lord of the Rings, I had my copy with me, which must mean I thought there was a sort of off chance of meeting him. We went into Merton College and up these stairs with sort of depressions in the wooden stairs and the outside door was open and this wasn't prearranged at all and we knocked on the door and he was in and I went and met him and he signed my book for me and we had some chat. He was extremely nice. I, I later found out he'd retired there after... He'd gone there after his wife had died. He was actually very old. He'd retired long since and gone to Bournemouth and then his wife died. And <laughs> in a way, which is utterly strange to anybody at any other university in the world, <laughs> um, the college had said, oh, yeah, you can come back and live, stay, live in the college. <laughs> um, and he was very convivial. But what I remember is, what I, one thing I was very struck by was he had his wonderful room um, floor-to-ceiling bookshelves, a view of lawns. I thought, this is a job, this is incredible, this is fantastic. We talked about reading and writing. And uh, <laughs> I think that was when I first registered that there was a job that was called being an academic in an English literature academic. Now, of course, I've never had a room like that. <laughs> I don't have one like that now. That's... Gerard Tolkien's career and mine don't have very much in common. Although uh, you do have floor-to-ceiling bookshelves. I have got floor-to-ceiling bookshelves in my head of department's room at UCL, so I have got that. And um, uh, and actually, it's quite a capacious room compared to many. But, but anyway, that was when I got the seed of it, I think. So it wasn't just... I hadn't sort of really realised that he was a sort of scholar of Anglo-Saxon. I didn't think of it like that. I thought... Novels, books, imaginative literature. It's a job as well. Nice surroundings. This seems fantastic. And that was sort of right at the back of my head. And then, and then I, I, I think, so, I mean, that was like, so it was a bit like somebody, a little boy deciding they wanted to join the army when they're 12 or something, and then eventually doing it. Mm. And then my career, oh gosh, well, very conventional for those days, maybe less so now, so 
I did English literature at Cambridge, much easier to get in in those days than it is now. Um, yeah, with my A-level grades, I would be, I wouldn't stand a prayer nowadays. But anyway, I think, again, you know, many people experience this about careers. An accident, actually. I did very badly in my part one exams, which you take at the end of your second year in Cambridge. Um, and that was a consequence of, um, of folly and having ideas about my station and writing probably quite aggressively contrarian exam papers flooded with quotations from Jacques Lacan and, um, and Michel Foucault because that was just coming, that was just arriving and ill-digested and ill-understood by me, but anyway. And to my horror and chagrin, I, my result was quite poor and I, I got um, much poorer than lots of my peers who at the time seemed to be much lazier than me, some of them, and did much better. And that was quite a chastening experience. And so in my last year as an undergraduate, I completely revolutionised my approach. The truth is I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the business of completely reconstructing my academic approach to things. And it, it, it started off as a pragmatic thing, and it, but it became really enjoyable. And I, yes, and so I did very well in my exams as a result of this <laughs> perhaps slightly cynical reconstruction of my, my uh, sort of intellectual output. Um, I think it would be very important, actually, for people to have those experiences. I had one um, at school uh, when I wrote a, an incredibly bad essay about Othello. Yes. Which was a play that I adored and still adore, and was so shocked <laughs> by how poorly it was received that that kind of galvanised me to do better. Yes. And then I had a very similar experience again with a different area of English in, at the end of my first year at university, and so I, I, I can hear a lot of yes. similarities here in, in the sort of the mindset that you then think, right, this is, I really have to sort of get on yes. with this now if I want to make a, yes. make a life out of this. Yeah, I mean, you can react to different ways. They blow this for a laugh. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but of course, it's a, it's a specific version of <laughs> at the risk of sounding like, you know, um, the old man of the hill. You, don't, you never learn anything from successes, only from failures. You know, you know that. Mm. Everyone knows that. But um, I, le- I graduate. I mean, it has to be said also, I think that although there was a lot of foolish flurry in my head at the time because of this apparently very exciting arrival of literary theory, which it was like new wave music or something. I mean, you know, everybody who was, I knew who was interested in um, reading literature was in some way got caught up in it. It was sort of unavoidable. Um, but aside from that, I think, I, 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 it was quite, not because of that, aside from that, I think I was quite fortunate in that I was do, a, a student at a time when there was sort of quite a lot of very interesting people teaching me. Without naming names, I mean, quite a lot of them were lackadaisical or sometimes brutal in their criticisms in ways which, no, you know, you're just not allowed to be nowadays. It was a different age. However, intellectually, there were some very stimulating people there. Anyway, I I left. I went and actually taught in a prison for a year 
teaching Pentagon Prison. And then I went back and did a PhD. I guess from the moment I decided to go back, in my heart, I was thinking I wanted to be an academic. And again, it was much easier in those days in that um, if you got a good topic and you finished your PhD in sort of three years or so, um, already you were ahead of the field because there was such a dropout rate and such a cock-up rate and things were so much less scrupulously handled by universities that um, if you just <laughs> survived, already you had quite a good chance of going on beyond that. And I think while I did my PhD, which was on sort of the cult of sensibility in, in the 18th century... Now there's hundreds of books on it, but I mean, it, at the time it was quite a lucky choice. It's just a lucky choice. It was a real thing, hadn't been much done. So <laughs> there you were. And um, just getting to the end of it already made you, made me sort of have a chance of going further, I guess. I mean, you, that, that brings us neatly to my sort of second question, which is that you've, your career has taken you you know, mainly to the literature of the 18th century, but also to the uh, early 19th century. And you also write about contemporary fiction, you know, among many other things. And I was just wondering, is there a, a question or, or a set of questions or concerns that sustains your attention across, you know, so wide a terrain of material? Well, that's, I, I think that I've always been interested in novels, I suppose, so partly my, um, my early research, my early interest in 18th century literature was an interest in what often gets called the rise of the novel. And the very first thing that started me was Tristram Shandy, really. I remember reading, reading it, writing an essay on it when I was a, an undergraduate. And as, what, as people say, you know, being blown away by it, but just thinking, this book is... More audacious and irreverent and tricksy and facetious and clever and ingenious than anything else I've ever read. And but it was written by a by a middle aged Yorkshire clergyman, you know. <laughs> and and I remember it being one of those things. I know this is a this sounds like a slightly moronic insight to have had, but I remember it was one of those books which made me realise that. Some people in the past, the best writers, say, I mean, it goes for musicians, artists, all sorts as well, but my, for my interest, the best writers, you know, are um, cleverer than we'll ever be. You know, that, that the history of literature is not like the history of science. I mean, the history of science is full of, nobody now maybe is as clever as Isaac Newton, but we, you know, the average GCSE student knows more than he did. But, but, it comes as an insight, I think, to quite a lot of my students to realise that, um, you know, I don't know, a, 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 a spinster with a year and a half's formal education living in Hampshire in the early 19th century with relatively limited access to books can write a novel that's better than anything anybody else can write now. And not just better, but so much better and so much more brilliant that you just sort of step back in amazement. It's quite a sobering thought, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it makes me, or, or rather it reminds me of the, the sort of the sobering impression one gets from books when you sit down and the task ahead of you, 
the, the almost insurmountable task is editing a work of fiction. Yes. Because you, you somehow have to... Well, you can never rise to the level of the author, but you have to find a way to treat their work with a respect that almost demands that you do. And you've done a lot of work uh, in this area. Yes. You've edited a lot of novels. How do you approach that kind of work, and what draws you to it? Well, I think editing is part of what it's a, a you know it's I don't know which is cause and which is effect. I mean, just take one step back. Thinking you asked me this question, my my sort of early career. I think the thing that perhaps has changed since I was in my twenties in my approach to literature, but it's changed slowly, and it, I, I think it was always a change that was going to happen. Is like lots of academics, I realised that it's less and less about my ingenuity, which actually may be a self-flattering thing, but nobody else gives a damn about, really. And it is or should be about the ingenuity of what you're reading. I mean, ingenuity for want of a better word. <laughs> um, if I could put my finger on one thing that exasperates me sometimes when I am exasperated about um, li academic literary criticism, it's when the critic concerned is basically interested in their own ingenuity. You know, and that is the most important thing to them. And I think I remember Terry Eagleton once saying rhetorically, I admire some of the things he writes, but I remember him saying rhetorically once at the height of the sort of literary, critical, theoretical frenzy, you know, well, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to write just as interestingly about a bus ticket as about Paradise Lost. And that, that's the opposite of what I think. <laughs> um, so editing is one thing that teaches and confirms, I think, that sense that you're, tr you know, that there was a an interesting, alive, creative human presence behind this once. And he or she was up to something, <laughs> all the time up to something. And editing is essentially the process of having a line by line, page by page, deciding how much or how little, because I think it's best, as Dr Johnson says, you know, notes are unnecessary, but they're a necessary evil you need to provide to help the reader see what the person, see for themselves, not tell them, but see for themselves what the person was up to. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, I, I think when I was in my 20s, I would have been slightly amazed at the thought that, so 30-odd years on, I would say that my main interest in literature is trying to work out what a writer was up to. Yeah, well, it's it's that sort of quest, isn't it, for understanding um, that we have different means of access to, I suppose. Um, what you've just been saying about editing uh, reminds me of a remark made to me once by the late um, David Bradshaw when he said that one of the reasons that he enjoyed editing so much was because he knew, particularly for um, series like the Oxford World's Classics or mm. Penguin, he knew people were reading his work because he was guaranteed an audience, and a very sort of unpredictably yes, wide yes, audience, yes. as opposed to, say, criticism published with a university press in a monograph format, say, so a book-length uh, mode. Is that something that appeals to you about editing too, actually reaching an audience? Yeah, absolutely, definitely. That, it does appeal to me. I, I do remember once, it only happened once, being on a tube train, and there was 
a woman sitting, I was standing, quite proud, and there was a woman sitting in the seat next to where I was, and she was reading the world's classics edition of Daniel Defoe's Roxana, which I'd edited, and she was reading my introduction. I looked, I didn't, I didn't push it any further, I didn't say hello, but that would have been, as my son would say, weird. <laughs> um, but then, you know, but yes, and, and that's one of the reasons, well, no, that's, that's the reason why I ended up doing, you know, interest in contemporary fiction and writing quite a lot about it journalistically, mostly journalistically, well, that creeps into my academic stuff as well, because if you're interested, as you know, as I am, as I'm sure you are, in in, in things like the history of the novel, in a, essentially, it's no good saying to newspapers, oh, any time you want me to write about Tristram Shandy, here I am. I mean, I have written about Tristram Shandy in newspapers, but, you know, the opportunities for doing that are limited. However the opportunities for writing about contemporary literary, literary fiction have been, at least in the last 20 years, for me, and not just for me, quite extensive. And, and so, in a way, I mean, I've always read contemporary novels, but I've, I've been drawn into that because that's the way of sort of making literary criticism available to a non-academic audience. I mean, this is a theme that's come up a fair few times in our conversation already, this, this split between sort of um, accessibility, different kinds of readership, uh, the way one writes, and, yes. and what yes. that communicates about yourself as a scholar. What do you think the role of the academic is at the moment? Well, of all academics or just English literature academics? I mean, um, uh, I don't think that academics sort of have a duty somehow to make everything they do accessible to everybody. So I, my own interest in writing literary criticism or literary analysis that is available to a non-academic readership is not... I don't feel massively righteous about it, as if everybody should do it. I have colleagues in my department and friends and colleagues in other universities, whose work I greatly admire, who do things which are deeply scholarly and of necessity only really interesting to perhaps as quite a small constituency. You know, you're, I don't know, you're talking about editing. I mean, most of the, not all, but most of the editing I've done has been for things which do eventually get published in paperback. You know, but there are other kinds of editing which you and I absolutely rely on. <laughs> sort of like the sort of the um, almost scientific scholarly yes. edition. That's yes. Of project. You know the the scholarly edition, the obscure letters, the you know things like things like that, which are, I think, academically really important. And you know, I would I would be able to justify to a non you know I'd be able to explain to somebody who wasn't an academic why it does matter that anybody who wants to can go to the shelf and get X. And there are, I think, all sorts of, not just editing, there are other kinds of literary history and critical analysis which are not um, deliberately obscure, but are of necessity quite narrow in their appeal, but are very, very worthwhile. 
I confess I sometimes wish I'd done more of those sorts of things. Um, yeah, I don't think accessibility is a sort of absolute good at all. But I also think that, frankly, I, I, I don't know. I talk to lots of people outside academia because of the nature of the sort of writing I do. And people like journalists and publishers and people in, in, in the broadcasting media. And those people, I know they're not represented the whole population, but I think they're often quite puzzled when academics don't have confidence in the value of what they're doing for its own sake. Let's call that the in-our-time constituency. There are quite a lot of those people. And actually, beyond those people who actually would listen to that sort of Radio 4 thing, I think in the wider population, those attitudes are generally shared. I, don't, I think it's academics who sort of um, interrogate themselves about the kind of ideological formation of the study of 17th century poetry... Um, I think the people who pay most of the people who pay most of the taxes to keep students at university and keep universities going would think it was fine. I mean, that's my experience. Yeah. I mean, I share this view, and I think actually uh, we ourselves, as you, as you as you say, perhaps are responsible to a large degree for having the worries that we do. I mean, there are other issues at stake yes. here, but but I think that at least insofar as that can be isolated from them, I think we deserve to be, and should be, a little more confident in yes. ourselves. Yes, I think there's somebody, I can't remember the name of a critic, somebody I used to know quite well, who, who described in the 1980s what he called the Gerald Ratner moment. Because <laughs> you'll remember Gerald Ratner, the Julia, hmm. jeweller. His company, I'm not sure if it's still going, actually. I think it crashed, but it crashed because at one after-dinner speech, he joked, and then it was recorded and reported in the newspapers, about uh, the products that his company sold, which was apparently silver, apparently gold, but actually, I won't use the word on the podcast that he called it, but he described with sort of um, satirical derision his own products, and therefore people implied that the people who bought them were idiots. And this was widely reported, and the company will fold it, more or less. I can't remember a friend of mine, or an acquaintance of mine, who described the Gerald Ratnerism of some academic criticism in the 1980s, which was so bent on self-criticism of the nature of the discipline that it seemed to undo its own authority. And actually, you know, I think authority may sound like a bad word, but if literary academics or any academic have any authority, why are people bothering to listen to them talk, you know? Or <laughs> paying £9,250 to, to, to be taught by them. We're almost out of time. Okay, good. Um, well, so, final question. Yeah. Um, an easier question. Are you reading anything at the moment that you'd be willing to share with the listeners? Ah. And that you're enjoying? Uh, that I'm enjoying. I'm reading, um, I'm reading three things. That's usually my average. Okay, I'll tell you very quickly... I'm reading Little Dorrit, which I've read lots of times before. That's because I'm writing a book about Dickens. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not my favourite Dickens, I think it's got... But any given page of it has got something fantastic in it. Mm. Um, and I just reread The Confrontation between 
Arthur Clennam and Flora Finching, who they were engaged. They, no, he proposed marriage to her 20-odd years earlier, and he wasn't allowed to marry her. And it's modelled on Dickens's first Maria Beadnell, who he proposed to. And, and then, with horror, found out a couple of decades later, met up with her and found her sort of fat and foolish. And that's sort of often thought to reflect very, very badly on Dickens. And he turned her into Flora Finching. But I've just read the chapter where Arthur and her meet up again. And, yeah, it's sort of, you think worse of Dickens, but it's so brilliant. It's so funny and touching. I mean, she's absurd, but also also touching. And, and um, anyway, that's fantastic. I'm reading a brilliant book by my former colleague, Rosemary Ashton, um, called One Hot Summer, which is about 1858, and about the great stink, um, and the Thames became so smelly that nobody could sort of sit in Parliament. And it's about Disraeli and Dickens and and what they and, and Darwin and what those three had the various crises those three were having at the time. And I'm also um, reading one book which I wouldn't recommend to your um, listeners. I'm reading a gothic novel by Anne Radcliffe called A Sicilian Romance because I was just sort of returning to gothic novels trying to remind myself what they're like and it's the one Radcliffe I've never read before and it's reminded me how foolish gothic is <laughs> um, and how sort of sententious it is or Anne Radcliffe is and um, why Jane Austen wrote Northanger Abbey <laughs> Well that's a suitably polemical uh, point on which to end um, John Mullen, thank you very much. Thanks.